My guest today on the podcast is a 17-time Grand Slam winner. She's won every Grand Slam at least twice, and she has 69 career doubles titles under her belt, two Olympic gold medals, and in 2010, she was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. With me here is Gigi Fernandez. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to talking about mental toughness. My audience, it's kind of a a fan favorite topic here on the Essential Tennis Podcast. And so I'm really looking forward to digging into how our listeners can play their absolute best when the pressure is really on and it really matters the most. I'm not surprised that they're interested in the mental game because um, I'm sure, I don't know if you know the sad, but about 84% of the time that uh, pros are playing, they're not actually in the middle of a point. So it's a lot of dead time. Uh, it's probably maybe a little bit higher for amateurs or lower. We don't have that stat, but it's some very high number of percentage of the time that you're playing tennis, you're not actually playing points. So that's, you know, the, when people ask me what's the mental part, what percentage of tennis is mental, I say mm-hmm. 84% of the time because it's all the time that you're not playing, you're, you're in your mind. So definitely need some, some strategies and some, uh, things to do with that time. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That's, a, that's an awesome stat. I hadn't heard the actual number before. But yeah, that's fascinating. Definitely plenty of time for us to talk ourselves out of playing well uh, during those in-between points. So, so Gigi and I are going to talk about her kind of top uh, suggestions or tips or fundamentals for being mentally tough. We're going to answer some excellent questions that listeners have submitted for, for Gigi to answer. And then mm-hmm. we're also going to let you know how you can sign up for a free mental toughness workshop that Gigi is coming out with that is going to be tremendously helpful to you in your game. Gigi, I thought it'd be great to kind of kick things off with what are what's your philosophy when it comes to the mental game? What are the things that you think are most important, especially for the club players listening that want to play the best? Um, so I'll mention two things. I'll mention pre-match preparation. Uh, I think that recreational players, by and large, do a very bad job of getting prepared for the matches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't necessarily think about it the day before or the week before like pros do. Um, I don't know what they're doing the night before. You know, I had a, definitely a very set routine of things that I did starting the, ma- the night before the match. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think with, you know, how I get my outfits ready. And before I went to sleep, I would think about the match. Um, and of course, nutrition, how I ate, what I, you know, what I drank, what I ate, all those things are really important. And then also the morning of the match, uh, what are you doing that morning? And most, I know it's for, of course, pros have the luxury of time. So we have all the time in the world to get to a match early. A lot of times recreational players are, you know, dropping kids off at school and running to get to a match, um, and running onto the court, not ready. So, um, so, so I think that's one thing that really they suffer from like not starting the match, not being mentally ready to play that match. And then mm-hmm. the second one is um, the timing between points. Like if you watch the pros play, that very set uh, sequence of events that happens in, in that in between in those 25 seconds that you're in between points. And when you watch amateurs play, it's not so clear that they're following a sequence. So mm-hmm. I would say those two things. Interesting. Yeah. And you're, that actually reminds me of one of the, my favorite questions that got submitted. Let's go ahead and just roll right into that because I think it's a perfect segue. James Falvo wrote 
to you and said, clearly professional tennis players see the need for improving the mental game, but most rec players don't seem to understand or need the mental game in their arsenal. Do you agree? And why might this be the case? What suggestions do you have for rec players to embrace the mental game? So maybe part of it is that club players just don't really, they don't view themselves obviously as professional athletes. And maybe they, they kind of see it as being some fancy thing that only high performing athletes or elite athletes need. Do you think that's the yeah. case, Gigi? No, I, in my experience, I think uh, recreational players know that they are struggling with the mental part of the game, at least from, from my experience, I send out a questionnaire um, late November and I asked my email followers, if you could ask a 17-time Grand Slam champion two two questions about the mental game, what would you ask? And I got over 2,000 responses. Like, mm, people really wow. wanting to know, what is it? Like, what can I do to close out a lead? What can I do to not choke on break points? What can I do to, you know, play better when the pressure is on? So in my, in my what I have kind of come to the conclusion is that recreational players want to work on their mental game, just don't know how. They don't know what to mm. do. And, and in fact, a lot of pros don't know how. You know, a lot of aspiring juniors, uh, you know, that, that don't have, they don't start working on the mental game. And, and that was my, my case. Like I, oh, I don't know if you know this, but I almost quit tennis four years into my career because I could not handle my emotions. I didn't really? know how to deal with pressure. Um, I was known as a female McEnroe of, of my era. I used to break over a hundred rackets a year. I would pay my fine <laughs> to the WTA ahead of time. I would send the check and say, here's, let me know when I owe you more. So I, I was definitely not born with a gift of mental talent and, you know, slowly with help from a lot of different, um, industry names, like Dr. Jim Lair was the first one that really helped me start to understand what was happening in that time in my head and what was happening in the time between points. What were my thoughts? What I was, what was I thinking? Um, and then I had a couple of other mentors along the way that really helped me understand what was going on and, and help me figure it out. So I could play the best tennis of, of, you know, the match when the pressure was, was at the highest. And, you know, that's the only way that you can win as many grand slams as, mm. as, um, you know, particularly Natasha and I, we won 14 grand slams in a five year period. That's almost three grand slams a year. Wow. Um, so, so that's not because we were the best players in the world. You know, at the time, those players were playing singles. We mm-hmm. just understood those better, and we just had you know, were mentally tough, and we played well when the when the pressure was on. So, I think for for the recreational players, it's really first of all understanding what are the things that they can do that are replicable that pros do, and these are not things that are that are reserved for the pros. Like everybody can meditate, everybody can visualize, everybody can have pre-match preparation, everybody can have goals that for the match that'll help them play better. Everybody can work on their, you know, their what I call the crate sequence, the time between points. What are you doing in that time? Everybody can do these things, and everybody mm-hmm. can have trigger words, which are um, trigger words you need to execute, and everybody can have, you know, this mental toolkit that'll help them um, play better under pressure. Love it. Yeah, I'd, I'd love yeah. to go back to something you said just a minute or two ago that I think is so important to highlight. And it brings me back to a, a question somebody asked uh, that really 
displays, I think, a misconception a lot of amateur players have. They have this mm-hmm. view of professional players as them being these like perfectly calm, like robotic athletes that just don't ever have any ups and downs. And no. Lori uh, Lukens <laughs> asked, Gigi, ask, ask Gigi how or if she stayed relaxed relaxed during high pressure points and grand slams against some of the best players in the world. So she's like, Lori is saying maybe, maybe she always stayed relaxed, but it sounds like that definitely was not the case for you. No. Well, I mean, I don't think it's the case for anybody. Like you feel Mm. the nerves. Like you you wouldn't be human if you were nervous. And, you know, I talk in my, in my, um, my mental toughness workshop, I talk about what happens to you in the pressure. And what's happening is the physiology of fight or flight. The same thing that happens when you run into a barren woods, the same physiological reaction to your body <laughs> happens when you're in a stressful situation. And things that are stressful, there's, you know, there's pressure, there's people watching or not, there's your teammates relying on you, there's, you know, your ranking, your rating, you want to move up, you want to move down, we've worked so hard for this. So there's, you know, of course there's pressure. If you're not feeling it, you're not human. So, um, so did I stay calm? I, I had, I did a lot of different things to help me stay calm. And the answer is I did, otherwise I wouldn't have performed. And, um, you know, and you see, I think also that misconception that you just mentioned about the players are, are calm and cool and collected. And, you know, people watch the, the tour players, the top hundred players in the world, so the ones that are on TV most of the time, right? So the Roger Federer's and the, mm-hmm. you know, and the Serena Williams of the world, but down to the top hundred players in the world. But there's another thousand players or 2000 players that are, playing satellites that challengers and, you know, second and third tier level events that have plenty of talent and sometimes even more talent, but they can't figure out the mental part of the game. And, you know, keep, mm. and who comes to mind right now is Nick Kyrgios. You know, the guy's sure. got more talent than probably just about anybody on tour, but he cannot figure out the mental part of the game. So, um, so definitely it's, uh, it's something that recreation some percentage of the time, you know, whether it's 10% of the time, 15% of the time, it's not all about hitting forehands and backhands and, you know, working on your serve. There really has to be some time allocated, whether it's 10 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, and to doing things that are going to help you with the mental part. So a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned, used a phrase, mental toolkit, which which I love. And you've talked about meditation mm-hmm. a few times. Uh, apart from meditation, what other tools do recreational players absolutely need to have in their toolkit? So I have 12 of them in, in the product that I'm coming out with. There are 12 things that I did when I was playing that helped me, I felt, play, play my best as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one, reversing the score is a really good one. Um, I most there's inherent pressure and break points when you're the returner. Uh, so if you're not winning a lot of points and you have break points in your mind, you tell yourself that's not break point. That's that's add an add point, and uh, that kind of changes the mentality. And it's just telling yourself this. And you know, the first time you do it, it's probably not going to work, right? But it's like anything in life. The first time you do something. Uh, you know, you have to take, you have to stick with it. And after a couple of tries, you start feeling less pressure because now it's not break point. Um, you know, learning to breathe. I think people do a really bad mm. job, especially recreational players. Um, breathing and it's also so simple because we breathe normally. But I'm not talking about 
your regular breath, but I'm talking about diaphragmatic breathing, which is breathing deep from the diaphragm. And in, in the course, I teach people how to do that. Um, and it's a very elongated breath that really properly oxygenates your body and, and relaxes you. Um, you know, and, and, and it, we know it relaxes you because people do this breath with machines attached to them and you can feel the, the muscle tension coming off and how your brain calms down, your brain waves calm down. So, so, so those are just two things. And there's, like I said, there's 12 things in the, in, in my toolkit that I share with people, um, that worked for me. And I think will will also work for, for recreational players. Awesome. Does that breathing technique, does that apply to during points? Or are you talking specifically about the 80 or 85% of time in between points? So, so I was talking about the time in between points or on changeovers or even during the day. Like mm. even if you're, when you're driving to your match or if you're in a stressful situation outside of tennis in life, just taking deep breaths is something that really truly relaxes, relaxes your, your body and your system. And, um, and I would, I would take deep breaths between points almost, I don't know if I did it every single point, but anytime the pressure was on, I was taking deep breaths and you mm. probably couldn't tell because, um, you, I wouldn't look like I was taking a deep breath, but, but I was, I mean, it, it was not a visual thing, but it's something that, um, that is definitely happening in any time there's, there was a pressure situation. Awesome. So I've got a great question here from Brian Bond, and it sounds like you, you've already received a tremendous amount of feedback from your audience about what mental pitfalls that they're familiar with and what they're aware of. But Brian has an interesting question. He wants to know, what's the biggest area in which players are mentally weak without even realizing it? And do you have any suggestions for how to improve that area? So does anything come to mind for you, Gigi, that's kind of a, a blind spot for recreational players? So I already, I mean, I mentioned that time between points, mm-hmm. um, but I think having rituals is something that's really, really important. Um, and rituals are not just, you know, right before you serve. Most people have a pre-served routine or a pre-served ritual, I think. I mean, I, I think most competitive players, if they don't have one, they already know that they should be having one or they kind of think they have one. It might not be very sequence perfectly, but there's something going on there. But I'm talking about rituals throughout the day and and rituals the night before, rituals the morning off and rituals. You know, there's a reason that, um, you know, for example, I don't, I, you know, who comes to mind, like the Brian brothers when they're winning a tournament, they'll go eat at the same restaurant seven <laughs> nights in a row. <laughs> nice. You know, it's like it creates familiarity and it puts your mind at ease. And it's sure. the repetitive nature of these things that, that, Put you at ease. So when you have these these rituals that you do that are you know, create a habit, um, then you know what's important, or the reason it's important is that it doesn't make any point more important than the other. When you have very set rituals, or any match more important than the other, you prepare for this mm-hmm. match. You know the second round of your or the big match on a Sunday at one. You prepare for that match the same way that you're going to prepare for USDA Nationals at the national campus, like preparing the same way. So they're going to feel to you the, the same way. Um, mm. And also uh, that, and also with a specific point, if you prepare for a point, the first point of the match, you have a preset ritual for that point and you have a preset ritual 
that's the same for a break point and you'll have the same match point then in your body on your mind it's like these are just all the same importance you're not doing something different on match point and freaking out because it's much point and taking the first point light because it's just the first point and it doesn't matter that much. You got to try to treat each one the same way. Hmm. Interesting. It, it reminds me of the unlimited press clips of like after the big game or after a match, you know, in any sport where the athlete is saying, Oh, we, we're just taking it one, you know, game at a time or one match at right. a time or whatever. And so it, it kind of reminds one me point of that. At a time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. So no, you were sorry. talking about. That, uh, you, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but it's you mentioning that, um, you know, specific, more, another specific answer to this question that Brian had was mm-hmm. that players are not good about playing one point at a time. Now that you yeah. mentioned that, like, you know, one of my toolkits is spending an entire match just thinking, I got to win the next point. And mm-hmm. that sounds very easy to do. If all you thought <laughs> for one entire match is, I got to win the next point and nothing else, <laughs> I promise you to everybody who's listening that you'll play way better than if you have better without you having. That's all right. you thought about. It's like, I got to win the next point. And that point's over. Now I got to win the next point. I got to win the next point. Um, have that mantra and that will help you right away. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd be fascinated to hear feedback from listeners after giving that a shot. Uh, yeah. So you're you're easy. talking. Yeah. 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 I, I'm just. Yeah. I'm kind of running through it in my own head. I, I definitely can see how that'd be really tough. Um, so going back to the idea of of rituals, Gigi, you were talking earlier in our conversation about even the day or the night before what you're eating, what you're drinking, laying out your clothes for the next day, and you made mm-hmm. a just kind of a quick comment about how thinking about the next day's match was kind of part of your ritual. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what specifically are you thinking about or meditating on as, as far as your next match is concerned? So I used to um, see myself winning the match and hmm. I used to, well, you know, okay. So let's take the two, two answers to this question. There's like, you know, what I call long-term preparation. So it's preparing myself long-term to win Wimbledon. Like my whole life I wanted to win Wimbledon. So so there were times in my, you know, in a year when I was prepping for that, this could be in January or February or March or any time that I had kind of downtime or I wasn't preparing for a match specifically, I would go to sleep. And when I was going to sleep, I would visualize myself holding for the match at Wimbledon. And I probably held for the match at Wimbledon thousands of times. So then when I actually went to serve for the match at Wimbledon, <laughs> I was fairly calm because I'd done it a thousand times in my head. Um, so that's, that's one part of that. And then the other part is... Um, like, well, if I turn clock. The other part is uh, the pre-match preparation the night before. It's kind of just putting yourself or going through your day. Okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? When? What time do I have to leave for my match? Uh, you know, I, I count for traffic. So I have to leave at this time. So I need to wake up at this time. So kind of backtrack into it. I want to get there 30 minutes before. I have to leave 45 minutes before. I want to wake up at this time. You always want to wake up with, you know, at least two to three hours before your match, if possible. You don't want to wake up and go rush into a match. So these are all the things that I was thinking, like, what's my day going to look like? You know, my, you know, how am I going to get to the courts and who am I practicing with? And I would kind of just visualize the whole day and then walking onto the court and, and winning the match. You always visualize winning. Don't ever visualize losing. I never lost a point in my visualizations. <laughs> uh, I was always holding at love and, um, you know, some, maybe not. Maybe sometimes I would go through through a little struggle, like do that, do that, and of course I would always win the game. I never never visualized visualized losing, but 
But these things help. I mean, they help. They, they, what, because when, like I said, sometimes your mind doesn't know the difference. There's thing, your perception is not reality. So you, what you perceive in your mind and what's actually happening, sometimes your mind doesn't know the, dif- the difference. Like you could pretend you're somewhere and be somewhere and the feelings are the same. You know, that's another thing that I used to do. I used to, when I was really stressed out, I had a happy place. And my, my happy place was um, my dad's boat in Puerto Rico coming back from, from the islands. And mm. as we were approaching harbor, the sun was setting over the horizon. And I would sit in the front of the boat and could feel the wind, the breeze in my face. And this was my place of calmness. So whenever I was in Atlanta, I was really stressed out on the changeovers or I would close my eyes and I would just pretend that I was there. And immediately this calmness would, would come upon me. So, um, that, so that also is another one of the toolkits that I have that's, that was very, very powerful. Really interesting. So, so with yeah. all that work and on the, the mental rehearsal and the visualization, what was your go-to response when you went out and you played you know, on the biggest stages in the world and something really frustrating would happen that you didn't necessarily visualize for ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you mean I was not calm, cool, and collected? 100% of the time. <laughs> um, I mean, I had a temper. You know, if people watched mm. me, I, I figured out how to control it, but I would I would definitely fly off the handle. Um, but I think what I, because I'm a passionate player, I'm a passionate person, so, you know, some people just have to let it out, and some people are more more agitated or passionate than others. And if you're that type of player, the importance and what I learned was that it was okay to have the emotion, but I needed to bring it back and Mm. I needed to uh, bring it back to what was important. And actually meditation was what helped me the most with that. Because when I I learned to meditate, um, and this is an incredible story, but I learned to meditate in 1992. I went to the Deepak Chopra Center with, Mm. uh, I was invited by Martina Navratilova and Bill Jim King to train with Martina for a week leading huh. up to the European, I know. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about transcendental meditation or, or Deepak Chopra, but how bad can it be to train with Martina Navratilova and Billie King <laughs> before heading for the European swing, right? So Absolutely. I and um, so we would play tennis in the mornings, and we spent all afternoon doing Ayurvedic treatments um, and at the Deepak Chopra Center and also learn transcendental meditation. So I went from learning to meditate in April of 92. I went to... Yes, the uh, French Open and won the French Open in June. I won Wimbledon in July, the Olympic gold medal in August, the U.S. Open in September, the championships in November, and the Australian Open in January of the next year, six months after learning how to meditate. And what it taught me was how to change one one, uh, thought for another without judgment Mm -hmm. or emotion. Mm. Because what happens when you meditate, you're supposed to be thinking for 20 minutes about your breath, or about your mantra, or about um, something repetitive. Like, I had my own mantra that was given to me, but if you don't have a mantra, you can just concentrate on your breathing. So you're supposed to, for 20 minutes, think, breathe in, breathe out, or repeat this mantra. Now, what happens is your mind will wander. It's just going to go into, i gotta, I got to go grocery shopping, or it's Christmas, <laughs> what am I going to buy, or i got to make the bed, or whatever it is. Sure. Your mind, you'll find it, it's just going to completely wander. And then you have to bring it back, but you have to bring it back without judgment or emotion. So you can't be like... You dummy, what are you thinking about? You just have to be calm and say, okay, fine, let's go back to our mantra. Don't smash a racket. <laughs> yeah, so I learned that emotion, I learned to change one thought to another without just another emotion. So when I would get really mad and I would, you know, yell at the umpire um, and be really stressed out and agitated, I would be like, okay, you got to let it go. And I've got to go back to my 
my little mantra meditation and and I would uh, find a way to calm down. So interesting. So for yeah. those of those of the players listening who maybe even in 2018, meditation sounds a little intimidating or maybe a little woo-woo for them. Like what, what's the yeah. kind of a practical, easy way for them to, to try it out uh, for themselves? So, okay, so there's two apps. Um, one, is called, one is called Calm and the other one's Headspace. And sure. I was referred to these apps and I didn't know anything about them, but apparently Headspace is a $500 million company. So they're onto something <laughs> with that one. And it, it, it's just, you know, Calming and stopping your mind and calming for me. We all have very busy lives and we're going in 52 different directions. Sure. And just taking 10 minutes a day to stop and just relax. Uh, so that's one thing. Those, uh, I don't know if they're free or not because I, I, um, there's actually free cards in the paid card. I hate for people to have to pay for their stuff like that. But the other thing that you could do is you could just set your watch for 15 minutes or start with 10 minutes because 20 minutes. It took a while for me to get to 20 minutes of, of um, being able to do this. But start with 10 minutes and set your timer for 10 minutes and sit down and just breathe in, breathe out for 10 minutes and see if you can do 10 minutes. And once you can do 10 minutes, then try to move to 15 and eventually, you know, you can just keep it at 10. Uh, any, anything you can do to like uh, help calm down your system and calm down in this crazy, busy life that we're all living with um, would be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I have I haven't tried Calm, but I have tried Headspace and yeah. yeah, there's there's a free kind of pack that you get when you download it. So yeah, you, you don't have to right. pay for it in case anybody is wondering. I, I definitely recommend yeah. trying it out. Yeah, right, it just uh, sends me a reminder. Go ahead. I get like a little reminder every notification every morning. Get it in your head and it's like and sometimes I yeah. do it, sometimes I don't depends on what I'm doing. But but yeah, there's definitely ways that are not so like you said, woo woo, because back then it was <laughs> I was like, what the heck is this? But, <laughs> but hey, it worked, so I went with it. <laughs> yeah, geez. I mean, that many titles? Yeah, who cares how we do yeah. this? <laughs> right. Exactly. All right, let's uh, get to one, just a few more questions here before we talk about the the free mental workshop that uh, that you have available, Gigi. Really good question here from Gloria. She asked, how do you maintain mental toughness at the beginning of a match until the end without dropping your level of focus? As a Rec Devils player, too often we have a lead, but then we lose in a tiebreaker. So what are your thoughts there, Gigi? So um, so, so this is interesting. So what I talk, when I talk about focus, and I, and I think a lot of times what players suffer from, and it, you know, it's more shot selection, or they they want have the right idea for they know what they should be doing, but they don't stick with the plan. And they, mm. they try some shot that they know they should be trying. Just be speaking to what you know is working and not trying silly things, not trying a drop shot or going down the alley in, in, in doubles or sure. or just you know, continue to focus on, on one thing and not changing it all the time. Um, and what I what I tell players is there's certain points in a game that are important. And, you know, obviously game points, break points, we all know that those points are important. For me, recreational players need to consider the first point an important point because a lot of times they were the changeovers, whether they're social, they tend to be social, people kind of talk to each other, but even if they're not social, our minds wander. They go, they go into um, what they're doing, what they need to be doing, or they might be upset about losing the game. So I want players to treat the first point as though it's a big point. 
And also, so we got the first point, we got the break points. And the other point that I think is really important is the fourth point. The fourth point of the game, which is the 15, 30, 30, 15, mm-hmm. 40, 40 lost points. So, so if you treat those points like they're big points, then this means that for those points, you're not, you're not taking any chances. Because we know that tennis is a game of errors. Right. 90, uh, 70% of the points, between 60 and 70% of the points on tour end in an error, depending on sure. the surface, higher on grass. So if we know the point's going to end in an error, then don't take any unnecessary chances. Um, so to help you maintain your focus for the whole game, it's really playing one point at a time. And at this point, it's just as important as this point, just as important as, as the game point, and then understanding that you don't want to take chances on these big points. So it sounds the like second part to that question. Uh, how often? Oh, and then as far as tiebreakers, then I I treat tiebreaker points are all big points, right? I mean, don't wait till it's five six or or six all to start playing um, like it's a big point. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes it's it's kind of counterintuitive, but sometimes you have to say not to lose, and because again, because the we know that the point's going to statistically the point's going to end in an error. So we don't want to take unnecessary chances uh, and make an error. Um, so yeah, and, and again, I mean, and we can get deeper into it because it depends really on the mass situations that, that you're facing. If, if you're better than your opponent you're worse than your opponent or you're even with your opponent. And those are the only three options. And based on, the, on those three, then your risk level needs to change or your risk taking changes. Um, so hopefully that kind of addressed that or answered that question or started to answer that question. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you're a big advocate of, of playing the percentages and, and yeah. knowing where the smart shots are. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, I'm very data driven on what, when I learned and what I taught and what I teach now when I was playing, um, I always like playing the statistics um, and high percentage tennis wins. You, you might get lucky once in a while and, not win with low percentage. And then the other, the other thing that's interesting about high percentage tennis is that what's high percentage for you might not be what's high percentage for me, right? So you can turn a low percentage shot into a high percentage, what people would consider a low percentage shot into a high percentage shot if you're very good at it or if you practice it a lot. Um, so for me, a drop shot, a back and angle drop shot volley might be a low percentage for a lot of people, but for me, it was like bread and butter, right? So it depends on, on your level and what shots you're very good at, what's high percentage for you is different than what type of percentage for your opponent. Sure. Awesome. All right. Two more questions here. One from Barat who asks, in a match, there are usually multiple momentum swings. How do we get the momentum back when it's not with you? What, what are your thoughts on momentum, Gigi? Um, so... Learning how to slow down and speed up a match is, is kind of important. And what I used to do when the momentum was not in my favor, when I, was, when I didn't have it, is I would slow down. Mm. The tendency is to speed up. Um, you speed up when you're about to close a match, and then you also speed up when things aren't going well. It's natural. Like, you, it's like you want to kind of, you're losing this game, so you want to get it over with to get to the next one. And, and that's, kind of, that's, uh, that's a problem. You actually have to slow things down when the moment is not going your way. And then when, when it's going your way, then you want to speed it up. Like if, you're, if you have a lead and you're cruising, continue to cruise. Like don't start slowing down. Don't take a bathroom break when you're winning. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you don't have the momentum, like bathroom breaks are a perfectly legal and acceptable part of tennis. Um, so if you need a, uh, sometimes you just need a little three minute break or five minute break. Sure, sure. Uh, 
So, or just, you know, leave, go get the balls in the other side of the court. Like do something that uh, helps you slow down when the momentum's not on your side. I love it. But when the, the momentum is in your favor, it sounds like you want to keep things moving as quickly yeah, as possible. Yeah, keep it up. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, just maintain your rhythm. Don't slow down. Um, and don't be allowed to be slowed down. A lot of times players will try to slow you down. Um, I mean, sometimes that's hard because the, the server is supposed to maintain the tempo. Um, but but don't don't purposely slow down when you're when you're rolling. Just keep it going. Awesome. Great advice. All right. Final question here from Lily, who it looks like is going to be joining you at a camp in Tampa. She wants yeah. to know what is the key to success in life and in tennis? Oh. <laughs> Looking wow. forward if to I this one. Answer, if I could answer that in one question, I'd be like, <laughs> I don't have a private island in my private plane. <laughs> um, what, well, I mean, I think, I think taking, you know, if you use the tennis analogy, taking it one point at a time, or taking mm-hmm. taking life as it comes, you have to. You can't do anything about what happened last month, last week, or even in the last point. And you you have to learn from your mistakes. You have to put it in your data bank of you know what's going on in this match. You put it in there, so you're aware of what's happening. Um, and you can't do anything about what's going to happen at the end of the match. Sometimes we get so caught up with winning a match, and we get so excited about the possibility of winning that we lose our concentration. You know, we get ahead sure. of ourselves. So really in tennis and in life, the only thing you could do is in tennis, play the next point, and in life, live this moment that you have at the best, you know, having the best time possible and, and, then, and then move on. So, so that's my advice to Millie, and I look forward to um, seeing her here in Tampa. Awesome. So, Gigi, please tell me and, and tell our audience about the free mental workshop that, that you have available. What can our listeners expect to learn about, and what kind of results mm-hmm. can they expect to see if they implement what they learn? So, the free mental workshop, in the free mental workshop, I cover um, what happens to you under pressure. I briefly mentioned the physiology of fight or flight. It's a play when we're playing tennis because it's a stressful situation. So, I, I talk about what's happening to your body, what kind of things um, you probably already know are happening, but more importantly, what to do about it and how, how that relates to tennis and how, what kind of person are you? Like some people are, some people are going to fight and some people are going to flight. And depending on which one you are, your tendency in tennis will be different. Um, so that's the, the first lesson. And the second lesson I talk about how, what I call trigger words and trigger words are what you need so that you can execute be, uh, better under pressure. And um, trigger words are mental cues that you have that you use uh, as you're striking the ball or right before you strike the ball that um, put your mind at ease and, and help you not only from a physical perspective, but also um, from the physiological perspective and from the mental perspective. And then in the third lesson, um, I have a, 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 not a paid program, but a full-blown program coming out that's called the Roadmap to Mental Dominance. And then in the third lesson, I give away the blueprint, which is um, the seven pillars, what I call the seven pillars to mental dominance and what each one uh, entails. And then if you can follow what's in that document, then you will you are on your path to mental dominance. And I kind of give that away. So these are all the things that you need to be working on to be mentally dominant. So, um, so I hope a lot of people go through it. Uh, I think, you know, I, I have been helping recreational players play doubles for the last uh, four or five years. And the reason I created this product is because 
the, their biggest struggle was really the mental part of the game. So, so, mm. so many people wrote me and said to me, you know, I, I get all the dollars and I get where I'm positioned and I need to do this and I need to do that. But mentally, I just, what do I do? Because I, my, my thoughts get in the way or my mind gets in the way or I'm not thinking the right thing or I but can't close out a lead or I, I know sure. I'm better than my opponent, but I can't beat her. Um, <laughs> so these are all the mental struggles that we all had. And I had every single one of them. Um, and I learned how to not have them anymore. And that's what I'm sharing. So I'm really, really excited about it. Well, thank you so much, Gigi, for, for sharing your experiences and, and uh, really kind of boiling down those lessons over the years that you learned at the, the highest levels of the game and and for sharing those insights with us. Uh, really, really gracious of you. And I highly recommend everybody listen, listening, go check out that free workshop. You can grab it or you can sign up for it at ggfernandeztennis.com. Is that right, Gigi? Is that the best place? Yeah. Yeah, you can from the website. You'll be able from the homepage. You'll be able to access the free mental workshop. And I just want to thank you, Ian, for everything that you do for the tennis um, recreational players. Because I've been following you for about three years now, and I'm very impressed with everything that you put out. And um, I there's a lot of people giving online information, and a lot of them are good some of the time and good part of the time. But I've yet to find someone that every time you put something out out i agree with it so congratulations on that you have my the stamp approval so far and everything you put out so thank um you. i just wanted to say that uh thank you that's very nice of you i appreciate it and yeah. it's uh, for for me as somebody who's been doing this for a while now it's so good to see people who are at the top of the sport like you jumping into the online space and sharing what you learned and sharing your your insights and, and your lessons uh it's I feel like most of the professional tennis world is really kind of hesitant to, to jump into the digital space. And so it's completely, yeah, you're totally right. It's completely <laughs> like a non world to yeah. professionals, but, um, but yeah, I'm glad I found it and you and Will have been being great mentors to me. So, um, I really appreciate it. Well, you're doing an amazing job and uh, de- definitely just want to encourage you to keep going, Gigi, because so many people are going to benefit because of it. And this free mental workshop that you're putting out is just a, a perfect example of that. So if you're listening and you enjoyed what Gigi just shared, I highly recommend you go sign up. Go to ggfernandeztennis.com and go check it out. It's, it's free to sign up. You'll get a lot of tremendous value from it. And uh, looking forward to hearing how your game improves. Uh, so, Gigi, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate your insights. I know my listeners are going to appreciate it tremendously as well. Uh, even if you don't sign up for that free mental workshop, you're going to find a huge amount of value on Gigi's website. So, so go check it out. And, Gigi, hopefully I can have you back on the show again soon. All right. Thank you, Ian. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.